Let's get started. Good morning, everyone. My name is Gert van Berg. I work for Sunlam, and I'm, I'm uh, chairing this session. The session is called uh, IFRS 4 Lessons Learned from Initial Implementation. I think it's rare that uh, a presentation's title dates faster than the content, but anyways, that's what happened here. Yeah. Uh, but I'll leave it up to the, the panel to explain about the new uh, numbering for the standard. Um, my job is just to introduce the, the speakers. Also, I'm, I'm going to start off on uh, closest to me is Jan Hofmeyer. He's um, uh, a non-actuarial guest. Um, Jan has served as the Chief Financial Officer for art, uh, of the Art Insurance Group uh, since 2008. He's a qualified chartered accountant since uh, uh, 2006. Um, and he obtained his under and postgraduate qualifications at the University of Stellenbosch in Cape Town, respectively. Then next to Jan, we've got Ryan uh, Sabotsky. He, uh, he is a actuary, consulting actuary, working at Deloitte in Cape Town. Um, and he spent his last 10 years at the Deloitte. Next to him is Jura Kalazin. Uh, and uh, he's also a consulting actuary uh, at, um, at Deloitte uh, in Cape Town. And then lastly, we've got Peter Tripe at the end. Um, he's a director uh, in the life insurance practice of uh, Deloitte uh, and also based in Cape Town. I think um, I'm going to leave it up to Peter to start off the, the presentation. Thanks. Thanks, Gert. Okay, I'd like to kick off with a question. Who of you is tired of yet another regular update on the glacial progress of IFRS 4? Okay, great. I, I thought I might actually have to prompt you or like keep you honest on that sort of question, but I'm glad to see that, that we've got some honesty out there. Um, I mean, the reality is that more than 90% of the standard has actually already been locked down and been locked down for quite a while. Uh, so we thought that it might be nice to actually just jump in, boots and all, and actually just try implementing it. And so we decided uh, you know, to do that uh, you know, with a real live product line, uh, with a real live uh, sort of client of ours. So. Uh, Jan uh, was the unfortunate CFO guinea pig who agreed uh, to, to sign up for this exercise. And I really must uh, thank him for his bravery in coming to an audience of actuaries to uh, sort of justify some of the thinking of the ISB over the past 20 years. Um, but we'll leave him to that. Um, I, I won't bore you for long. Uh, I'll leave that up to the rest of the panel. Um, Ryan and Jura are the technical sort of gurus who have spent the time converting the understanding of the standard to our existing sort of models, thinking about how we're going to have to update models, how we're going to source additional data, and then sort of working with Jan and his team in getting that data and accounting data and then sort of interpreting it. So I'm very much going to leave it uh, up to them um, you know, to, to tell you of the details of exactly what we did, how we did it, uh, you know, what war stories we learned, uh, you know, through the process, and hopefully you'll, you know, you'll learn, uh, you know, from some of, uh, you know, from some of the things that they've discovered uh, over that sort of time. So, of course, 
I have to give at least a bit of a background, you know, some update for those of you who've been sleeping for the past 20 years uh, on the journey of IFRS 4. Uh, and that's actually where Gert's uh, sort of comment comes from. Um, so, first of all, this slide may be familiar to some of you who've come to some of these sort of updates and presentations, but I won't go through the whole history. Suffice to say that the journey started around about 96 or 97, and here we are sort of almost 20 years later, and um, after three attempts at discussion papers, exposure drafts, the last one being in 2013, but at the beginning of this year, in around about February, the ISB board uh, came to the conclusion that they'd done enough thinking and they tasked the staff uh, with actually drafting the standard. So around about the June session, they were already actually starting to look at that draft standard. A version of it has been uh, circulated to a limited audience for fatal flaw review uh, in August and September, and an even more restricted audience has been sort of asked to do some field testing. And then literally last week at the ISB sort of board meeting, uh, they considered the results of that field testing, as well as uh, I think some of the, the you know, some of the messages that has been coming through uh, with some of the the political lobbying, and a couple of, sort of key messages that have come out. So first of all, uh, the point that Kurt was making is that this draft standard that is circulating is IFRS 17. It's no longer IFRS 4 or IFRS 4 Phase 2, and the ISB is actually particularly proud of the fact that. Uh, whereas until now they've been deleting IASs and replacing them with IFRSs. This is actually the first IFRS that is going to be deleted and replaced by an IFRS. So IFRS 17, they said, will have an effective date of 1 January 2021, provided the standard gets issued in the first half of next year. Um, so as ever, never quite committing, um, but that's as close as I think you'll ever see the ISB committing to, and, and certainly the expectation, they're saying March they expect to get it out, so even allowing a few months slippage, uh, I think uh, June, uh, they should get it out by then. So I think we really should be starting to plan for a 2021 implementation date. The other two uh, sort of key things that sort of came, well, the, well, the other the main sort of decision or message that came out of last week's meeting, which I think is really important, is around the unit of account or level of that you have to aggregate things. And until now, I think that's been one of the areas that's really scared quite a few people. Uh, the expectation until now has been that you probably have to break your business up into cohorts of business um, of very granulous of level that you have to account at, you know, so grouping them at similar level of profitability and various other characteristics. And some people have been expecting that to require reporting of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of cohorts. Whereas the paper uh, that was approved last week uh, indicates you'll probably need two, maybe three cohorts per product group per year of business. That's still quite a lot to keep track of. Um, but certainly it's an order, if not two orders of magnitude, less than what we were sort of expecting. So I think some of that political lobbying has been heard and made some sort of progress. But that's enough on the theory. Um, I'll hand over to Yura to sort of kick off on the, our practical implementation. Hey. Can, oh. Thanks, Pete. So as Pete mentioned, it took about 20 years, or close to 20 years, to get this um, standard to where it is currently. And maybe just to remind everybody what, 
what was big back then when this, when this uh, project had started out? So this guy was still the president of the United States. This was a brand new blockbuster classic, just a new box office hit, whereas now it's more like a vintage classic, something that the parents would watch. It's really old. <laughs> Does anybody even still remember who these are? This was a big deal back in 1997. Um, Microsoft became the most valuable company for the first time in 1997. This guy over here, not many people knew who he was, but now he's the absolute tech technology guru. He just started his way up in the up the apple tree. Then we had Mike Tyson. And then this book came out for the first time in 1987. Now it's pretty much essential reading. It's, um, I'm pretty sure it's on everyone's bookshelf, but back then it was actually brand new. So yeah, it, it, it took a long while to get the standard going. And then as you might have noticed, or you would pick up as you go along, um, there's a very kind of subtle Beatles theme running through this entire presentation. And the reason why it kind of came about is when we were starting with kind of putting a presentation together and thinking, you know, this is standard and took a while, and this project of ours took a while, but kind of the song, the long and winding road came into my head, and it kind of set the theme for the presentation. But it also links to the 20-year the journey. If you think about it, kind of the Beatles went from nobody to peak of popularity to breakup to kind of John Lennon's murder in 1981, more or less in the space of 20 years. So. 20 years is a really, really long space of time. So now that we can get this lighthearted stuff out of the way, um, the kind of the main reason for being for this presentation um, can pretty much be summarized by a quote by good old Morpheus from Matrix. There's a very big difference between knowing the path and actually walking the path. So as Pete alluded to, um, over the 20 years that the standard took to be developed, Reams and reams of literature and presentations and papers were written on, you know, what does it mean in theory? What's a, is a theory sound? What it would theoretically mean if you were to implement this? Um, what would a um, expected, projected kind of profit run of patent be on a very specifically constructed product under very certain limiting assumptions? But not much has actually been said about what would it actually mean to implement this, this uh, standard practically? You know, are there any pitfalls out there that are not apparent if you just read the standard? So that's basically the reason why we, we're here today, is we took all that literature and said, well, let's try and actually do this. Let's take this FS17 standard, and let's take a real product, and let's actually try and implement this. So. Um, it's something that's, that's real, it's something that's out there, it has real valuation models, it has real sample calculations, real data, so what does it actually mean? And the end result of the end aim would be to construct an IFRS, well, hopefully, IFRS 17 compliant balance sheet and income statement, see how much effort that would be. And the main kind of driver behind this um, project wasn't so much the IFRS 17 numbers themselves, as illuminating as they were, but almost like accumulating a list of the various practical issues and difficulties that one would expect to encounter if you were actually to do this sort of practically, for real. So this pretty much summarizes kind of the chaotic nature of, of, of this task. So we ended up, uh, with Jan's help, uh, picking a, a product from um, Archer's book. And maybe, Jan, you can talk to it a bit. Chose a product um, 
when Deloitte asked us, uh, said to us this, and they would like to do f 7 mock implementation for free, we, we uh, took the liberty and chose our most difficult product. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the product we chose... <laughs> so the product we chose is a product um, which is a fully underwritten life product. It's got a unique characteristic in that it gives a client back all his premiums after 15 claim-free years in the form of an art bonus. And we were quite fortunate that this product's got a full uh, detailed data history, which certainly helped with the simulations. Yeah. So as you can see, it's, um, we have all the history for all the policy, all the data, for all the assumptions, all the models. It's all available. And it wasn't the most vanilla product, but it wasn't the most complex one either. So for example, we didn't stray into this variable fee approach nightmare, which scares me just thinking about it. So we've taken the models and we started kind of fiddling around with it methodically, component by component, changing it, altering it, adjusting it to see you know, what needs to be done to produce an illustrative IFRS 17 compliant income statement and balance sheet. Um, it was quite a team effort between our team and Jan's team, to which I'm very thankful for. Uh, we had to lean on a global experts in a couple of areas just to decipher the trickiest bits of the IFRS 17 standard. Uh, we had a professional project manager in here to make sure this this mock sort of project runs along nicely. Uh, we had to lean on our kind of neighboring departments from capital markets and our audit team to provide kind of external non-actual input and expertise into all of this. And maybe just to preempt the presentation a little bit, we did actually get it right. Well, 90% <laughs> right. We achieved 90% of what we wanted to achieve. I mean, given more time and resources, we could obviously kind of refine it further and fine tune it. but. Substantially, we were able to um, produce IFRS 17 compliant IFRS, uh, balance sheet income statement for this product. So, just a little bit of theory, just like a, a reminder for, for those who are not familiar with IFRS 17, what it's all about. So, the IFRS 17 liability consists of your best estimate cash flows, which should be familiar from Sam. There's some allowance for time value of money in there. You put a risk adjustment on top, and then you have this beast called the contractual service margin, which mops up all the day um, one profit. And the, the basis we took is we tried to lean on Sam as far as possible, uh, mostly to test the theory, you know, how much will, can Sam help you with this. So there are certain difficult, um, difficulties and differences which will become apparent as the presentation goes on. For example, CSM does not exist under Sam. It's a brand new concept. How do you deal with this? Uh, the discount rates could potentially be different. Uh, the risk allowance, the risk margin under Sam and the risk adjustment and IFRS, they are most likely to be different. There could also even be some bell cash flow differences. And um, I think Ryan will expand on that a little bit as he goes along. So the various kind of findings and issues that we picked up can be grouped into the following eight categories. Um, so is there anything special about contract boundaries under IFRS 17 compared to SAM? Are there any differences? You know, is there anything to watch out for? Uh, the best estimate cash flow sounds simple, right? But there could be some differences. Uh, discount rates, um, how do you set the discount rates? Is there anything different? Can you lean on SAM? Can't you do that? Uh, the risk adjustment, um, particularly given that the methodology for doing the risk adjustment isn't actually prescribed in the first 17. They give a range of options, so how do you choose an option? What's the best option? What's most practical, what's not? Uh, the contractual service margin, well, yeah, enough said, the contractual service margin. Um, reinsurance, is there anything special? Is there anything different? Is there anything additional to think about after doing best estimate cash flows that applies to reinsurance? Uh, the end result of, the, of our project, the, the presentation, disclosures, what does it actually mean? How does the new IFRS 17 statement shapes up? 
And we did actually attempt to transition on this product um, and that posed some unique challenges. So I'll now hand to Ryan to speak more to the nitty-gritty of everything. Thanks. Sure. So I'll, I'll drop my iPad there so that there's no confusion. OK. So we started out by looking at the contract boundaries of the product that we were uh, working with. Sam gives a good framework for assessing the contract boundaries of products. Uh, it gives you uh, good guidelines on when products go on and off risk, and also gives a number of useful examples. Now, we were quite fortunate that the product we, we chose fit quite nicely into the SAM definitions of contract boundaries, and therefore we could just simply rely on the SAM uh, contract boundary, which was basically the full term of this product. They, uh, this uh, 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 good luck is not likely to persist across all products that you look at, so a full contract boundary assessment has to be done for every uh, product or product group that you look at. So certainly doing some assessment of, on contract boundaries is going to be necessary uh, as part of an IFRS implementation. Uh, okay, that was the contract boundary slide. Apologies. Okay, then we move on to best estimate cash flows. And again, <clears throat> again we find that SAM is very useful because SAM forced us to move away from uh, the existing uh, statutory calculations where you have to have margins and restrictions on certain cash flows into an environment where you do have to model all best estimate cash flows. So all assumptions uh, have to be set at best estimate. Uh, you have to allow for future premium and benefit increases. And uh, most of the companies have, uh, have already implemented this for SAM. Um, there are some small differences, but they tend to be more in the assumptions rather than in the cash flow modeling itself, in particular in the expenses. Um, IFRS has a limitation on some of the expenses that you can allow for, while uh, under SAM, the, these are, um, the company has much more um, discretion on how much expense to, uh, to, uh, to include in the cash flow projections. So, yeah, again over here, the... Um, the, the, the work that all the companies have done in SAM have, has stood them in good stead for, uh, for IFRS implementation. Okay, now we come to discount rates. The IFRS um, specification discusses two approaches to allowing for discount rates in your models. They talk about a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. Uh, I'll just discuss briefly what they are and why we chose what we did. So the first is the top-down approach, where you start with the returns expected on your, on your assets and remove, um, remove the credit risk that's uh, inherent in those assets, and then you're left with a risk-free uh, return profile that you can then use to discount your liability cash flows. Uh, so we had a discussion with our capital markets team to say, well, okay, fine, Here we, here's a profile of, of rates, please can you remove the credit risk? And they said, okay, well, that's not so straightforward, and they said, yes, we can do it, but it's a bit of a process. So then we started looking at the other approach, which is the bottom-up approach, and we wanted to see if there, was, there would be less resistance in uh, implementing that approach. So the bottom-up approach is you start with a risk-free curve and you add an illiquidity adjustment. And we're very fortunate, again, having SAM in place, that the FSB releases a risk-free curve every month, and we could just simply use that curve and add an illiquidity premium to that. 
So given that that approach was certainly easier than doing a whole uh, asset, uh, uh, an asset-based profile exercise, so we decided to use the bottom-up approach simply because it was easier, although companies would probably want to consider um, one of the approaches. Uh, also, we, companies should keep in mind that the SAM risk-free curve is one example of a risk-free curve that's available in industry. There may be other curves that companies would feel more comfortable with. Some practical issues we found when uh, trying to figure out discount rates. Um, some other considerations that companies should take into account. <clears throat> Jan, I don't know if you want to talk more to this. Thanks, Ryan. So from a, from a, a policy or the liability perspective, we um, split the cash flows for the bonus component and the non-bonus component. And the reason why we do that is because of the unique risks that sit in the bonus component. So essentially, we match that bonus component differently to how we match the non-bonus component. So we sit with two discount rates. So from an IFRA 17 perspective, our interpretation is that the standard does allow you to use different discount rates for the different components of your policy as long as you can separately identify those cash flows. So in addition to those two discount rates that we used for these two components, we also use a third discount rate for the contractual service margin. Right, so as Jan said, so, both, so we have this concept in SAM as well. Uh, in SAM, it's called the matching adjustment, where you, have, uh, where, where you can uh, alter your risk-free curve, where you have particular assets matching the liabilities. Um, so we had that concept in our product as well. And as Jan said, we end up with three curves that we have to keep track of in our model. The, the uh, asset-based curve, which uh, is used for a certain component of the liabilities, the risk-free curve for the rest of the liabilities, and then each portfolio has, uh, will have a locked-in curve that's used to unwind and track the contractual service margin calculation. So a little bit of modeling work um, for that. Um, oh, and also, going, going back through time, when you do transition, you want to look at policies from when they started or at some earlier point. Now, that means that you have to go find historic curves and use those to track the contractual service margins. So in, in those cases, uh, you know, we can go back as far as SAM goes back if we want to use those curves. If you go back further, you have to find some other risk-free curve to use. So those curves are available, but then, you know, it's, it's a, an, again, one more thing that companies have to consider. Are those curves appropriate? Do they move in the right way? Okay, now we come to the risk adjustment. This is a new concept under uh, IFRS, which companies haven't really seen before. Now, it uh, reminds everybody of the SAM risk margin, but it, it's a little different. <clears throat> There's no specified way for calculating the risk adjustment. So the standard says that you need this risk adjustment. You have to disclose what level of confidence it adds to your best estimate liability, but it doesn't specify how you calculate the risk adjustment. There are a couple of approaches that are available. The one is the cost of capital approach, which is equivalent to the SAM risk margin if, you, if your capital is set at the SAM capital level. So that's one approach. Another approach is to uh, simply add margins to your best estimate assumptions, and this reminds everybody of the current uh, valuation uh, approach. And then the third approach that companies could adopt um, is to use a confidence level approach. 
where you say that your risk adjustment is going to be, simply be set at targeting a particular level of confidence. So, for example, a, a 75th percentile. Um, the approach that we chose to use was the confidence level approach, this last approach, simply because ultimately you have to disclose the level of confidence that you're adding to your liabilities. If you choose any one of the other approaches, you still have to do the confidence level work to understand the level of confidence that your risk adjustment is adding to your liabilities. There's a number of considerations that uh, companies would have to uh, make when setting the approach that's used to calculate the risk adjustment and, uh, and the level of confidence that you're targeting. Uh, in, in particular, if you are using a cost of capital approach, realize that you have to calculate your capital first before you can get your cost of capital. And for many companies, calculating cost of capital is quite a long and difficult process, and the capital calculations often, often happen quite long after the companies have produced their IFRS results. Now you're including an element of cost of capital as part of your IFRS results. Also, the level of confidence that uh, the cost of capital adds to your, um, to your best estimate liabilities is not certain. Uh, remember that the SCR, the same SCR, is calculated at a 1 in 200 level, but a, the cost of that capital is obviously not 1 in 200. Sorry, the level of confidence of that capital is not, um, is not uh, 1 in 200. So uh, you, need, you need to understand how much, how big your risk adjustment is. And then obviously the size then of that risk adjustment affects the size of your contractual service margin. So the interplay between those various items needs to be understood before the companies choose the methodology that they want to adopt. And then also, finally, the, the runoff profile of this risk adjustment affects the, uh, affects the profitability that's going to emerge from the policies. So, again, companies would need to choose the approach that they use for their risk adjustment carefully so that the profit emerges from the policies in a way that's suitable to the company. So. So the, uh, a, lot of, a lot of thought and discussion needs to happen around the risk adjustment. We, we chose the risk adjustment using uh, a, a one in four event, which is a 75th percentile. Uh, we calibrated this again using the SAM calibrations, so that we took the one in 200 and scaled it back to a one in four, and we set it uh, some, as that. Why did, we choose, uh, why did we choose one in four? Well, uh, it felt like a good number to use. In practice, <laughs> Um, in practice, though, a company would want to test other numbers and other approaches. And, um, and as, as we said, given more time and, and, uh, and more, more uh, emphasis on this particular part of the project, you, you would certainly want to explore other options. So maybe if we can jump in here. Uh, we're about halfway through the presentation. You know, we're starting to feel retired. And how does link to the Beatles? Well, more or less halfway through a 20-year career, the Beatles actually broke up due to feeling like strained and overworked. And we felt that was a bit of an ominous kind of sign, given that we haven't even gotten to the fun part of a project yet, which is the CSM. Back to you, Ryan. <coughs> so as Jura says, for, for those who, who like to get involved in, in building models, this is where the fun really begins, the, on the contractual service margin. So this is something completely new that needs to be built into your, into your models. So just a, a bit of background, the contractual service margin um, is a liability that runs off over the life of the policy. So that's what it is, and the, the rationale behind it 
is that the, all of the accounting standards are moving into uh, more of a revenue, revenue recognition approach. And the idea behind the contractual service margin is that companies should recognize revenue on insurance contracts over the life of the contract. And that's what the service margin does. It sets up a liability at the front of the contract and it runs off over the life. So the CSM is a new concept for us. Uh, it involved some new thought and trying to figure out how the calculations need to, uh, need to work in the models. The contractual service margin needs to be calculated at a portfolio level. So you need to take all your policies and group them into portfolios. And when we did this project, a portfolio was a group of policies that have a similar profitability expectation that are subject to similar risk factors. Um, as Pete mentioned up front, this definition of unit of account has changed a little. It changed last week, so uh, we are pretty fast, but we're not that fast. So we didn't rework uh, everything based on this new unit of account. Um, but so, so we've left our unit of account as it was, uh, typically moving into more aggregate levels of unit of account is, is not very difficult once you have all your processes set up. For this project, though, given the definition of unit of account, we decided to actually keep track of uh, unit of account and contractual service margin per policy. Um, given, uh, given the definition of unit of account, the uh, calculation per policy will give you a materially consistent result to grouping policies of similar size and uh, similar risk factors. And keeping track of individual policies was actually easier than doing a separate, a, se a separate piece of work, grouping policies together, and then doing the calculation at that level. Uh, that said, that all of our work could be done uh, and translated quite easily into a portfolio or group level rather than at an individual contract level. Uh, so something to keep in mind is that when you do reporting on the contractual service margin, you need to report on the, the change in the contractual service margin from one period to the next. And remember, this is going to, into your IFRS reporting. Uh, and that means basically that you have to include some kind of analysis of surplus process on the contractual service margin on your IFRS balance sheet uh, on your and income statement. And, um, and, and that means that your processes need to be in place to produce these numbers quite quickly. Uh, as part of your IFRS reporting, you have to have uh, um, accurate and fast uh, processes to, to get all your numbers out. Okay, what we're gonna do now is I'll just show you a quick um, representation of how data moves from, from one step to the next. Uh, when calculating the contractual service margin. Now, the CSM is set up at the start of the policy and is passed across time and across assumption changes um, for that particular policy. So you don't, it's not like a liability calculation where I can give you a set of data this year and you can do a, a full calculation. Here you have to have last year's data from the contractual service margin calculations in order to do this uh, calculation. So the starting point is last year's closing contractual service margin. And then what you do is you do a roll forward of that data, allowing for uh, increase in, um, the increase in the contractual service margin for, uh, for interest uh, and you, a release of the contractual service margin over time. So you have those two factors that allow you to roll forward the contractual service margin. You then have new business at point of sale. So you calculate the CSM, that's where the CSM actually starts is at, at each policy's point of sale. 
and that lets you roll forward and calculate an opening contractual service margin this, this year. You then make demographic, assum uh, demographic assumption changes, um, and the contractual service margin moves and absorbs the changes in uh, things like mortality and expense assumption changes uh, to, to the point that the, uh, uh, the, the contract is still profitable. Once the contract becomes loss-making, then the contractual service margin does not ab further absorb changes. Okay, then you make economic assumption changes, and there the CSM does not absorb uh, the, the, the impact of changes. And then finally, that data can then be uh, put away somewhere and backed up so that it can be used next year. Okay, so it, it mustn't be stored on a laptop in someone's, <laughs> in someone's cupboard because uh, if, if, it gets, uh, if it gets stolen or lost, it's a big, it's a big problem. Um, and then that process, so remember that process is not doing individual calculations, it's actually passing data from one step in the calculation to the next. And then all of those steps let you form the income statement. So the interest expense, the unwind of the contractual service margin over time, the actual versus expected experience, this is what I spoke about, it's basically an analysis of surplus process as part of, uh, as part of your build-up of data and that feeds into your income statement as well assumption changes and economic changes. Assumption changes get absorbed by the CSM and the uh, economic changes go straight to profit and loss. And then when people understand what's actually involved here, they sometimes get it right. <laughs> okay, and finally, everything that we've spoken about so far applies to the individual uh, contracts and the individual policies. Now, you have to just take that and do it again for reinsurance. So all reinsurance contracts, you need a best estimate liability, you need a risk adjustment, and a contractual service margin. These all have to be tracked and monitored for, uh, for reinsurance as well. So uh, let's, let's remember that as well. And over here, in our practical implementation, so the SAM work that we've done uh, has uh, stood us in good stead for reinsurance modeling as well. The reinsurance cash flows were all built into the models, so those worked well. You have to also allow for impairment on reinsurance, and uh, this, the, SAM, uh, the, the SAM structures and uh, recommendations for reinsurance impairment uh, were used in, in this particular project to calculate uh, impairment of, um, of the reinsurance assets and liabilities. Okay, so Euro, back to you here. <clears throat> thanks, Ryan. So now, thanks. So now turning to kind of the end result output of our the presentation, uh, which is the IFRS compliant balance sheet income statement, uh, we effectively started with taking the current IFRS financials and then seeing, well, how do they need to be adjusted or revamped given the additional model outputs? And I mean, for the balance sheet, it wasn't such a big deal. I mean, you're replacing one IFRS liability with a different number, just but the structure of the balance sheet doesn't change. But for the income statement, we very quickly realized that effectively we just might as well just bend the entire income statement as we have it now and construct something which is completely brand new. It looks and feels very differently, and that's what's required by the IFRS 17 standard. And that all was being done, you know, while the IFRS 17 standard isn't very prescriptive. It's quite a principle-based standard. It doesn't specify that, you know, this goes here on the income statement, this quantity is defined in such a way and goes there. So there's a lot of kind of thinking and interpretation and kind of filling the gaps that had to take place. But the kind of end result is that the 
income statement under IFRS 17 looks and feels and behaves fundamentally differently to what is currently out there. What insurance revenue means is fundamentally different. What profit means is redefined and is also different. And it behaves and moves completely differently. And effectively, in a sense, a large part of what is currently an actuarial AOS actually makes its way into your published um, IFRS financial statements. And that is actually a relatively scary thought, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I mean, my experience with the valuation processes in most companies that I've uh, worked with is as follows. Within the first few weeks, post the year end, everybody scrambles around, there's a lot of work being put in, you calculate the actuaries, calculate the statutory and published liability numbers, they provide it to the accountants who feed it into the balance sheet, construct an income statement, you get your uh, published result, which goes out and gets sent far and wide, everybody's happy, kind of the dust settles down a little bit, and then kind of the actuaries would go and lock themselves in the dungeon for the next two months and conduct all sort of wizardry and witchcraft, and then after the end of two months, they'll come out with something called an analysis of surplus, which allegedly explains how kind of the surplus arose over the reporting year. And it will have such kind of weird and wonderful concepts as like manual adjustments and approximations, and this brilliant concept of unexplained, which is often called other variances. But, but there's, there's two important implications here. Is firstly, um, is the current level of accuracy inherent in your AOS going to be sufficient for the published accounts? Because, as you said, the AOS effectively becomes your financial statements. You know, is how, how are you going to fit the concept of an unexplained into your published financial statements? You know, what, what are you going to do about that? Are the current approximations of, for example, taking new business cash flows over the first six months of the year and uh, assuming the kind of uniform, is that still an acceptable approximation for published results, particularly for listed companies? So my gut feel would be that a lot of effort is going to have to be put in into upgrading your analysis surplus to be a lot more robust and a lot less approximate. So the accuracy of the new IFRS 17 income statement is as close as possible to what you are currently publishing out there. And then the second implication, which scares me personally even more, is that whereas currently the actuarial analysis surplus kind of happens post the published results rush, and it's a largely supplementary to the income statement, well, there's now what you're going to have to do is you effectively have to do an AUS within the same space of time as you are preparing your published financial results. Now, that scares me. I mean, think about it. Is it, does it can your actuarial, poor actuarial team actually cope with this, to do this huge amount of work within a very short space of time? You know, do you renegotiate the timelines and like, throw fast clothes out of the window? Do you throw more people to the problem? Or in my, in my mind, the most likely outcome would be the AUS would have to become a lot more automated with a lot less manual intervention, that it can be done much quicker. But again, that implies a lot of um, effort to be put into, into automating this and speeding up the process. But that is actually not all. Uh, we've just confined this project basically to like the actuarial, nice and controlled actuarial kind of field where we do the modeling and what does it mean and a like few like reporting layers on top of that. But we haven't actually even started scratching around the surface of the wider areas within the company that will be affected by IFRS 17. And Jan, maybe you want to talk to it a bit. Yes, absolutely. So uh, certainly IFRS 17 is a radical departure from what we're all used to, not just in terms of how financial results are reported, but also in terms of the earnings pattern which is ar arises out of a long-term insurance business. 
So we've, many of us would have gone through the process of training our management teams and our board members on SAM. Certainly for IFRA 17, there would be a similar intensity to train your fellow managers and the members of your governance structure, but also the investment community on the impact of IFRA 17 on your reported earnings. The big departure here in terms of from accounting perspective is really how the income statement looks, uh, as Euro mentioned. So there's new concepts in the, in the income statement for which many readers of financial statements would be completely foreign. So it would be critical as part of the implementation project to really understand which components of the income statement drives the earnings performance of the business and which components drives volatility in the business. And to get there, I think during the implementation phase, one would have to do a lot of sensitivity analysis and scenario analysis on your numbers to really embed that understanding. It's also going to be very important to perform reconciliations between the SAM position, the IFRS position, as well as those two components to, uh, to EV. Um, I think interesting as well is I think we're all used to reporting in sort of broad consumer segments in our financials. Given that different products can look quite different on income statements if you, sit, if you put them next together, or, or together to, uh, they, I think there might be a move towards more product-orientated segment reporting rather than sort of consumer segment reporting. And I guess lastly then, from an implementation perspective, um, you know, we all went through the same process recently, and I was quite surprised by the complexity and the intensity of trying to go through this mock exercise. So this is a, another big project that heads the way of the uh, actuarial and finance departments within insurance businesses. Um, and from our perspective, we would certainly leverage the team that implemented SAM because of the large conceptual overlays between IFRA 17 and SAM, and as well as the data intensity. So utilizing the same data structures which one would have created for SAM would certainly be a point of leverage for the implementation of this standard. Thanks, Jan. Then maybe just to add a couple of points that, you know, given the revised the financial metrics and over and above the education, so, um, for example, how are you going to set your strategy using your new kind of IFRS reported income statement because the metrics are different, they work differently. Where are you going to set your hurdle rates? How are you going to adjust your um, executive remuneration based on the new world of what insurance revenue means? And I'm not even mentioning such... Uh, like relatively trivial items, can your IT system actually cope with the new kind of requirements in the data and the storage? That almost comes as, as given. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we did actually attempt transition this product, and we were feeling quite energetic and ambitious, and you know, we have a full history from inception for this product, we have all the data, so how hard can it be? Well, actually, very, very quickly we realized that actually even if you do have the whole history, it does actually become a problem quite quickly. And the problems start to accumulate the further back you go. So for example, like how do you treat any model changes that you've made over time? Uh, do you undo them? How practical is it going to be? Or do you just assume that, well, the current model is it. It's the best way of representing it, which is the approach we took. Um, how you feed your model, um, your assumptions to your model. You know, you improve your assumptions. You shift your tables around a little bit. Uh, you introduce new assumptions over time as you refine modeling your products. How do you deal with that? How do you set an assumption that you only set a year ago? How do you kind of roll it back further? And as Ryan alluded to, well, in pre-SAM world, where are you going to get your uh, risk recurve from? How are you going to get that, that right? Uh, policy all the data. Because we were doing things at the policy level, you know, uh, any tweaks or changes or reshufflings or additional fields added in, for example, the model point data itself does produce differences. For example, um, 
a policy number. It's meant to be a unique number attributable to each policy, which allows you to track it through time, right? Well, even in our case, when they had a full history, occasionally an extra digit will be added to policy number because they're running out of allocated policies. For example, the letters that you had at the front of your policy number got shifted to the back of your policy number at one year. So very quickly you run into like, significant reconciling problems, even with something as simple as a policy number. Um, and I guess it all speaks to, you know, it, it became an increasing kind of effort. I mean, given more time, we probably could have gotten it completely right by brute force. But it illustrates a point where how far back is far enough for the transition? At which point do you cross this impracticability boundary and you know, that you have a sufficient argument to satisfy your, your auditors that you know, you've done all you could have done to go as far back? So while we intended to do a full transition, we actually said, no, we're actually going to give up. So we've done it for a couple of years back and then did kind of a, as a whole transition more approximately at, at a point in time. So, and this is all, it's a massive effort, but it's all over and above the implementation we've just done just to get a balance sheet and income statement on IFRS 17. So maybe just to close quickly, if you've been sleeping through the presentation and just woken up, this is kind of a key slide. So the key messages that kind of hit home for us is that it is actually a lot of effort. And it, even for a relatively simple product with full history, it took us far longer and far more effort than even our most pessimistic estimates of time and effort required to put together on, in, in sort of starting this project. And as uh, I alluded to, and Jan helped me out here, is that we also just scratched on the surface of, or started scratching on the surface of the wider areas that are outside of the trail and accounting field that will be affected by this um, IFRS 17 standard. So it goes much wider. SAM is largely an actuarial concept. It can kind of be confined to the actuary. It's something they do in report to the regulator. But this is much wider than that. It's much more of a big deal. Can we lean on SAM in doing IFRS 17 implementation? Yes, we can. Um, if SAM wasn't there, it would have been a lot more painful. So it does help. But what we found is it doesn't help. We couldn't lean on it as much as we would have wanted to. So, you know, the concept of, oh, we've just been through SAM, it's a minor tweak, we're fine. That, in doing this process, realized that it isn't actually true. Uh, and I mean, the CSM development is just a, a case in point. Uh, IFRS 17 requires, in, from what we found, significant additional development over and above what you've already done for SAM. So this is actually kind of a big deal. So, you know, the idea is, well, start early, start small, but keep in mind it's a massive, kind of long, drawn-out process that goes far beyond actuarial. And just as a sort of parting thought, um, Sir Winston Churchill also always has kind of very inspiring things to say, and he did actually have a quote attributed to him that's uh, relevant for this topic, and it goes as this, that this is not the end, or not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning. So thank you for listening to us. Um, I appreciate the time, and we will now take some questions. Okay, um, thanks a lot. We've now got some time for questions. Um, can I sh oh, we've got two questions over there. Some mics are coming. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Johan from Mutual. I just have two, uh, I hope, very quick questions. Uh, one is, uh, for the contractual service margin, where demographic assumptions uh, feed into it, but economic, or economic changes don't, uh, would that include things like uh, long-term volatility assumptions for which you have, for instance, no market data, and essentially mark to model? Uh, would that also 
not go through the contractual service module, or would, would it actually feed into it? Um, and the second question is, could you perhaps explain the concept of the transition? Uh, my knowledge of infrastructure phase two is not as good as it should be, so I, I don't really understand that very well. So, okay. next mention that would be very great. I'll take the. Okay. okay, so so I'll take the the first question. I'll give the second one to Yura. Yeah. Um, so, so your question was um, where you have demographic assumption changes; um, those feed into the CSM. So those would affect all all non-economic assumptions. So long um, long term and short term uh, assumptions, but only on the liability side. All uh, the, the whole CSM calculation is not an asset calculation at all. So if you have if you have asset calculations that are marked to model, they don't feed into the uh, into the CSM. Yeah, and maybe just to um, add to that, I would imagine that uh, kind of all sort of market future volatility assumptions they largely feed into your guarantee reserves, and fortunately we had none for this particular project. <laughs> but I would imagine it's a con in, in my mind it would be economic assumption because it relates to asset values and, and future returns. So I would imagine it does not go into the CSM. And then on transition, just very broadly, um, in essence, what you're trying to do is kind of derive an opening balance sheet and the income statement, assuming IFR 17 was kind of always there. So there's a f which is kind of quite a task all in itself. And you know, the one most direct and most brute force approach would be to go back to the product inception, if it is at all feasible, and actually start constructing your income statements and balance sheets from inception rolling forward. And um, as I described, you do actually run into difficulties quite quickly, even for something that wasn't launched too long ago. So it, it, it yeah, the transition scares me. It's, it's quite an effort. Yeah, uh, and maybe if I can ju just add to that, um, the, this is another one of the changes uh, that the board decided on uh, so last week, whereas on transition, they originally proposed a three-tier thing. You know, first, you have to try and do it perfectly, going right back to beginning. Then if you can show, and that's show your auditors, amongst other things, that you can't do that perfectly, then you go to an approximate method, and then when you can show that you really, really can't even do that, then you can go to a fair value approach. They've now sort of proposed changing that almost into a two-tier. So first, do it perfectly, but then if you can't do that, then you've got an option, and you don't have to prove anything, you just have an option of either doing the approximate approach or using a fair value approach. Um, which, uh, to be honest, I'm quite surprised at that sort of decision because you can get quite different outcomes, you know, on the fair value or the approximates of approaches. You know, typically trying to wind things back and working out the CSM, we, we, we're generally expecting you'll have a higher CSM uh, than if you uh, try and uh, calculate the fair value of uh, liabilities up front. So you could end up with quite different balance sheets depending on which option you choose. This is Ron Richmond from AIG. Um, it definitely looks like quite a daunting process having um, looked at this presentation. So my question is, um, having looked at the results, does this lead to any enhanced understanding of the insurance business for users of financial statements? Do you want to take that? Yeah, I, th I, th I think it's... Um if I can answer the, the question in the context of Sam, it's probably the easiest way to approach it for now, because I don't think yet we've, you know, it would be nice to come out of this project with sort of a multi-year view of the income statement and see what's happened in the business, what happened in the income statement that year. So to that extent, it's very difficult to answer. 
But it is a good outcome to certainly have your regulatory concepts and your accounting concepts more closely aligned. So I think that's probably the area where users and sort of the investor community and, and, and members of the governance structure will sort of take comfort in. If, if I can just add to that. So I had one of my accounting colleagues say, say to me recently uh, when we completed an audit that it's, it's so strange that the net asset value of, of an insurance company is so different from, from its earnings. That the earnings don't, are not reflected in the NAV. And uh, you know, my response was that you know, NAV doesn't represent the value of an insurance company. So my, my question back to you would, would almost be, well, does the current setup reflect in any way the, um, the value of an insurance company? And no, not necessarily. Well, I guess what I'd say back is um, what you see in the analyst community is they like um, NAV on a market consistent basis because then it can be said that it actually reflects um, your present value of future earnings, etc. So if we're moving to an earnings-based set of financial statements, you're almost reversing it where you'll then, if you're an analyst to value a company, you'll have to take those earnings forward, project and discount. So it's equal, it seems like it would equalize it on an industry, across industries, but might be a step back um, from the perspective of valuation. Um, I think sort of addressing that point, but also just sort of adding to it, one needs to understand the global perspective of this. You know, so I think it's quite easy to you know, okay, anyone who sort of knows me I, knows I'm a huge fan of the FSV and car. Uh, to be honest, I don't even really like Sam all that much. Um, and, and I think our local sort of financial reporting, I don't know whether it's just a case we've gotten used to it, but, you know, so, you know the combination of FSV reporting and embedded value reporting, uh, I think, gives quite a lot of insight into both the value of the company as well as, you know, sort of earnings, you know, sort of release. But one needs to sort of understand that uh, one doesn't always have you know, these kinds of reportings in, in various other jurisdictions. And I think at least the value of the that consistency um, you know, of applying IFRS you know, the same you know, so globally helps. And I think um, you know, both, I mean, you so spoke to the revenues aspect and then understanding the value. Remember the disclosure, you'll see things like the CSM and the, the risk margin you know, separately from your best estimate. So those users who want to have a, like a best estimate or market value of the liability will be able to see that. And you know, a lot of that, you know, the CSM and risk margin is quite similar and akin to the VIF you know, from an embedded value reporting. So I think users will get to see some of that information. It might not be exactly the same as what they're used to, but um, I think the combine that information plus the consistency is most important. Because one of the feedbacks that you've consistently heard at other presentations we've had analysts talk to is that you know, the insurance sector typically trades at a discount because despite the best efforts of analysts to you know, sort of educate their, their, their consumers, uh, a lot of investors just, oh, I don't understand it. Uh, it's not consistent with global standards, so I'm not going to invest there. And hopefully this will address that. Uh, first of all, um, yeah, uh, thanks very much. I, as a big Beatles fan, I've enjoyed the analogies. Um, there's an obscure track on the White Album called Long, 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 which probably could also be uh, <laughs> very appropriate here, I think, both, both in terms of where we've got to and the number of hours we'll be doing in the future. Um, speaking on the Africa side, um, I mean, I think the upside is that it may force everyone to do some sort of analysis of what drives profits, and I think we've certainly seen a lot of problems where you know, people have maybe got away with not understanding where 
profit has come from. So that's probably the upside. Um, I think the downside is that this is very, very complex and a lot of work, especially as we don't, I think in many cases, I know the whole SAM and how it applies to African groups where we operate in Africa is under discussion, but we generally don't have SAM even as a, as, as a starting point or, or that sort of balance sheet, and indeed that balance sheet is quite, quite hard to derive. So, um, you know, I, I think clearly where there are simplifications, I think particularly on transition, it'll help, but, you know, it feels like a lot of work, and I think that, you know, the discussion is going to be in terms of the cost of reporting, mm -hmm. you know, versus the value of reporting, and, and um, you know, it could, could lead to some almost viability questions, because IFRS applies, I think, in just about every African country, so probably the application of this is non-negotiable, but uh, it, it does worry me, um, you know, with the upside that it, it will lead to at least some sort of basic quality. So, obviously, interested to hear the, the panel's thoughts around that as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I'll jump in on that one. Uh, definitely, I want to sort of echo that and point out, you know, one of the differences between IFRS and SAM, um, you know, so, you know, particularly, you know, companies that have subsidiaries across Africa have probably largely been able to just, you know, simplified approach, you know, for SAM and their subsidiaries, you know, for group reporting purposes, because it doesn't apply locally. Um, but the problem is, you know, IFRS is your accounting, and you will need to make sure that you're applying it at the materiality that's relevant for that subsidiary. So if you've got a small subsidiary with 100,000 Rand materiality, you've got to apply the same rigor and you're convincing you know, your users and auditors that it's been done appropriately as whether you've got 100 billion Rand on your subassets. You know, so, so that's one of the key things to realize. Um, and uh, you know, so Jan sort of spoke to you know some of the more systemic or you know process you know sort of changes that you'd need to actually start thinking about now, and that's one of the things. And uh, I, I definitely expect to see more centralisation of reporting, um, you know, you know, to you know centres of excellence rather than allowing distributed teams to you know be developing these things. Um, you know, otherwise it's yeah it's going to be a hopeless task uh, I think to implement it across a group. But um, just yeah, uh, the cost benefit, I hear you, but unfortunately I'm not the ISB, so. <laughs> okay, do we have any, uh, any more questions? There's another question over there. This is a question to, to, to Jan, but any of the other guys can jump in. Jan, what, what do you see the, the most significant systemic or process-related change um, in your financial reporting space? Uh, Stepping from 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 F seventeen. I think I think Jura made a good point around the analysis of surplus and the intensity that would have to go into that process because of the the overlap between your analysis of surplus and your income statement. So I guess doing that on a more regular basis, um, doing that on a more automated basis, is certainly something that we would have to start with um, today to build the systems and the infrastructure to get there. I also think in terms of the, the valuation process, the monthly valuation process would certainly have to have a larger team um, you know, uh, associated with that, that process. Um, and I guess those are the, the two things yeah, that really stands out for me. Okay, um, we've reached the, the end of the session. I'd like to thank our um, panel again. Uh, if anyone could give them a hand. Thanks a lot.
think we've got refreshments now.